All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. I am not broadcasting from the regular place. I am not broadcasting from my garage studio. I'm not broadcasting from the bunker in Los Angeles. I'm in New York City. I flew out here. It takes a tremendous amount of... Uh, of overcoming anxiety these days to sort of get it together to travel. I've had worries about the cats. Just when your life is tethered to pets, it becomes a little nuts. I mean, I've been nuts with cats before, different points in my life, different cats. But there was a period where I'm pretty sure I was uh, on the verge of bankruptcy and I might need to move out of my old house. But I I couldn't see forward with it because I didn't want Boomer to not have a place to roam to not have a place to live boomer was an outdoor cat so i'm like i'm going to have to stay in this house no matter what for however long it takes boomer to die and boomer disappeared years later but nonetheless tethered to pets panic i don't know how people do it with kids but anyway i made it i made it here i flew on the plane i was with uh i I was flying with jeremy strong not together but he was on the plane and we've been talking lately I have an episode with him coming up. Uh, very, very good guy, earnest guy, giving me a lot of information about restaurants I should go to when I'm in London next week for my shows. I believe there's still tickets for the uh, Bloomsbury Theater live podcast taping with uh, David Bedeal. Uh, you can go to WTFpod.com slash tour for information about that. Today uh, in the city, I... Uh, just earlier, just before I, I said, I might be in, a, in half a meat coma. I went over to Katz's, saw my buddy Dave, Dopey Dave from the Dopey Podcast, set me up with the uh, buffet of meats and pickled products and a bit of babka at the end at the Katz's. I do that every year. I'm going to do that until I get diabetes or a heart attack, I guess. The year we probably take a little off my life, but not a ton. But I'm just here, man. I'm here tonight. I'm going to be uh, doing a music benefit with Jimmy Vivino. Going to play a few songs with Vivino's band and play a song with uh, Jimmy Vaughn, who's also going to be there. Tremendous honor. I'm totally nervous. And uh, that's why I'm in New York. I don't even know if I'm going to do any comedy. I'm going to do the music, and then I'm going to uh, going to go to the Whitney. And I'm a member there for the couple times a year I'm here. I want to contribute to the arts, but I get uh, membership privileges. I'm going to go see the Edward Hopper uh, New York exhibit tomorrow. I'm going to go to Birdland on Saturday to see uh, Ron Carter play in preparation to talk to him. I'm probably going to eat at a couple of my favorite places. I'm going to see my friend Sam Lipsite, go to Mogador, maybe go to Veselka, go to Kiklides, do the meats and stuff that I like to do. I, I don't feel like I'm going to go to the cellar. I've kind of, uh, I don't know. It doesn't sit in the same way it used to with me, that place, for many different reasons. But I don't know. I've been doing plenty of comedy, long sets, heading to to England to do more long sets. I don't need to go do 15 minutes sets at a place that's hit or miss. So I'm going to try to fill my time otherwise in this beautiful fall weather that is happening here in Manhattan. So we got two guests today. I should tell you this. Um, we've got uh, Bela Fleck, the banjo player, songwriter and composer, and Michael Morris, director of the new movie I'm in, To Leslie. Now, 
I went to a screening of this movie the other night, and it's the first time I saw it on a big screen. I brought Kit, and uh, there was supposed to be a Q&A with me and this guy, Michael Morris, a director. And I'd never seen it on a big screen before. And I got to be honest with you, it looks amazing. Uh, he shot it all on film, which was kind of uh, intense uh, shooting it because he only get two takes, three takes. And we shot it in like I was only he shot it in like less than three weeks. But it looks great. And, and it's really kind of a, a sweet movie. Andrea Riceboro is, is stellar. And it just it came out great. And uh, it was funny. We watch it and then we're supposed to do a Q&A. And the person who was supposed to do the Q&A from NPR uh, was a no show. So I said, well, just I just so happened to be a pretty good interviewer. Why don't I handle it? So we basically did a version of, of what you're about to hear in a way. Only this is me. Uh, we're sort of discussing, you know, my, we're, you know, we're Michael Morris, a director. He's uh, he's done a lot of episodic television, uh, including Better Call Saul. Uh, to Leslie is his first feature and it's now playing in theaters and available uh, to rent or purchase on digital on-demand platforms and this is me kind of talking about the experience of it with Michael and a little bit about his life and uh, look I'm proud of the movie he's proud of it and uh, if you can go see it see it it's heavy it's touching it's uh, it's moving and and it does it ends okay you'll feel uh, uplifted but it, it doesn't I guess I heard uh, somebody say that there's not a false note in the movie, really. Uh, and I never, I, that's a new language to me, the idea of a false note. Um, I heard Brendan Gleeson mention it about his new movie, The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Uh, I saw him on Seth Meyers last night and he brought it up about false notes. But the same with uh, Two Leslie. And this is me talking to the director of uh, Two Leslie, Michael Morris. So now I didn't like before you asked me to do this movie. Yeah, uh, I I had no idea who you are. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> like we're, you're clearly not from here. No, I was born in London, uh, yeah. raised in London, and uh, and I was a theatre director in London actually. So for a long, how yeah. old are you? I am. How old am I? I'm 48. Now. I don't usually ask people that, but yeah. you look very young. They do. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like you know, you're holding up pretty well. 48. You know, it's <laughs> good. Right. Yeah, yeah, you get you're not wrinkled up. Not yet. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> so, but like, what do you mean? In, in uh, you come from a big family in London? No, I come from a small family actually. Uh, just myself and my sister. Oh yeah, she's a she's an artist. She's a paint a really? painter and a sculptor. Yeah. Like uh, what kind of fi- figurative, abstract? Um, it's a good question. It's figurative, uh, yeah. but but colorist. Like she's really free. She's uh-huh. really talented. She's she's uh, she went to the school in Paris and oh yeah, won their prize there. And wow. she's just a she's a she's just full. She's someone who gets who is able to sort of channel feelings into stuff. Like you know what I mean. Like yeah. it, it will you will feel something when you see her. Right. Stuff. Yeah. 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 And is really, she is she's in London. Yeah, she's in London. And she she does uh, she makes a living as a painter. Yeah, and a sculptor and a painter. Yeah, boy, she's doing she's doing great. What's her name? Annie Morris. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. And her and her husband too, actually, Idris Khan, phenomenal artist as well. They they they're a great couple. Anyway, that's my sister and me and. Uh, and your folks are artists? No. Huh. My mother was in the theater, actually, um, when she she was from New York. And she was in uh, c- part of the Cafe La Mama situation yeah, sure. there in the 60s. Oh, yeah. I just talked to Harvey Firestein. He was part of that. He was, yeah. yeah. Big. It was a it was a real thing. My mother so was she a Warhol person? She was not. She was she would be like I wish she wasn't uh, cool enough. Uh, uh, but she was a, she was more of a stage man. She was like the stage manager for 
a playwright who's just who passed away like I think a year or two ago called um, Israel Horovitz. Yeah, I know him. Israel was a was a um, a really important playwright, uh, especially early on in his career. Sure, I did Indian Wants the Bronx. You did not. I did. You did. Sure, I did it when I was in college. I did it, you know, as part of stage troupe. I did. Uh, I, I was. I. I. I must have been Murph. I love that play. Yeah, it's I, a. It's a big play. It's a. You know, he's one of those guys that came into trouble uh, for his behavior later in life. Um, but uh, but there's a, a, a few of those plays that it, I mean it, that's a great play. Well, Line was a great play. That was a great, he had a, his. So I should say that that I knew him his whole life and he knew me my whole life. And really? Because my mother was was really dear friends with him early on. And yes, you're right about what you said. But I don't you know I don't think it overshadows the the legacy that he had as a playwright. He was he was one of the few American playwrights that wrote like a. I don't know, like a French playwright, you know. Yeah, was, and his son's a Beastie Boy. His son has always been a Beastie Boy. Yeah, and yeah, it, not, uh, but doesn't talk about his dad much. No, but they're a great family, though. Yeah. Actually, his daughter's a producer, and his other son is a novelist. Like they're they're really they're really cool family. Um, so you grew up with uh, a little uh, of that, but yeah, but but yeah. Uh, oddly, uh, an environment that was at least art positive. Yes. That's the. I've never thought of saying it that way. I yeah. will, I'm stealing it. it okay. That's what it was. They they never made their living in the arts, but art was important. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you go to school for it? No, I didn't. I went to. I I studied because I wanted to be uh, a, a writer, and uh -huh. I wanted to be uh, very early on a, a theater director. That's what I did from 16. So so I went to school for English. I studied English literature. Uh, yeah, me too. Stuff. Where like any a fancy school? Yeah, Oxford. You went to Oxford. Yeah, that's fancy. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it just felt like, we're, yeah, it is fancy. I'm proud of it now. Yeah, good. And how about you? Where, where were you? Boston University. Yeah, that's fancy. No, it's not. It's just a private, big private school. It's expensive. It's more expensive than Oxford. Sure. Yeah, well, yeah. that doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> they've just they've slowly taken over the entire city, I think. But I, yeah. I studied English, and I did uh, stage troupe. I did theater. I directed some theater, and uh, I did a minor in film studies, which is it was yeah. an art history major. Or I, minor. Yeah, I did art history and, and English and history. Those were my my three. I loved that. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I really wrapped my brain thoroughly around my studies, but uh, I, I showed up and I took yeah. it in. Yeah. Yeah, and I did a lot of stuff, you know, edited the English Journal, wrote poetry. Yeah, I did know. the same thing. You did? We had a similar track. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I was big into writing poetry. Yeah, I yeah. I, 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 will do it sometimes as an exercise. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily show anybody, but it is part of my process sometimes to, to write things in the form of those type of thoughts. Yeah, I think it gets harder. Unless you really commit to it, it gets harder to keep that part of your kind of creativity alive i think well it's 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 like it's ridiculous so like in the sense that like you know if you're going to be a poet that's you kind of got to be a, you gotta do it's, it. what's got to be your life yep because and you've got to most times you've got to be an academic and you, you know you got to live in that insulated world where yep. poetry is important yep uh, you know, I'm not condescending it or trivializing it, but you know, just because you can write a few lines, you know, it can't be you can't be just be. I'm a poet. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you can, but yeah, one one poem doesn't make a poet. It's, no. You're right. It's a life. Yeah, it is. I had a, that moment leaving school. I, I I thought that's what I was going to do. Yeah, and then I had that exact <laughs> thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought like I can't make a living as a poet. No yeah. one can. You become like you know the poet in residence at the zoo sure. or something. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And I was like, that's not for me. That so sounds I, like an interesting job. I, is that a job? The poet in residence at the zoo? I think it might be. Is that a regular zoo job? I kind of like that idea. <laughs> what are you? I'm the poet in residence at the Los Angeles County Zoo. Wow, I didn't know they had those. <laughs>
Well, you know, to me, I, you know, so I, I, I beeline to theater directing, which isn't exactly a, a great living. But, you know, it but felt it, it was more in the world. It's a community. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know a couple of people that are poets. One guy who I went to college with who I, I, I don't know. It, it's all it's just that world. It's very specific. But yeah. theater directing, so you just jump in? Do you do any acting? No, I mean, I acted in school. I actually acted in one of Israel's. I did line. and But I was in it and directed it because it was hard to wrangle the cast. And so I would just would step in. I did enough acting to know that I wasn't an actor. Yeah. You know, but I have a real reverence for it. Like, I really, I, I, I like the fact that I know that I'm not an actor, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because I, it allows me just to sort of participate in a different way. Um, well, you know? it's like the directing thing. Like, I noticed from watching to Leslie uh, our movie on a big screen last night that there is something uh, about the gift of a director and Lynn Shelton had it as well is is letting things sort of play out Mm -hmm. knowing when uh, to step in or when to stop it and into Leslie you know there's a lot of long shots not not long uh, I mean time-wise that that are you know not talking Mm-hmm. And you know, there's certain courage in that, and you've got to have a certain confidence to to uh, to let that sit and not uh, be like, I don't know, yeah, yeah, this is going on too long. This was never. I mean, I I think it's you did a lot of plays. My my favorite playwright, yeah, growing up was Harold Pinter, right? And Harold Pinter's all about everyone that. auditions with that birthday party. Thing. I love that birthday yeah. party speech. <laughs> uh, but but, um, but the caretaker as well. Like these plays that have pauses, and you realize early on. I think it was just being able to do plays that taught me this was that silences are not silent. Do you know what I mean? Like most of what we say is not in the words that we're using. You know, no, it, and you know. it's like something I learn. All the time, more and more, especially as an actor, because uh, a film actor, because you know, there's a lot of tricks in film acting. Mm-hmm. You know that I don't really know because I'm so you know f- you know in it and frenetic. But even but in in your movie, because of of how I approached it, you know, I was doing things that I'd never done before. But I think that's correct in theater. Annie Baker uh, is a big pauser yeah. as well, yes. and she writes them in. I yeah. think Pinter does. He too. does too. But uh, but yeah, man. I mean, y- y- you know, it's powerful if people can hold it. That's the thing. I mean, I didn't want to. I didn't want to change it. So we made the movie a lot shorter, which was one of the hardest things. We got the movie to a place we really loved. But it was two hours and 45 minutes. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was two hours and 45 minutes. And it, we loved it. Like it, We screened it for our producers. And even though we all in the back of our minds knew it couldn't be two hours and 45. Although That's some, crazy. Some it's coming up on two hours now. It's just I can't even imagine. Where, like, what, yeah. where, was, where was all that meat? It well, wasn't with me. Well, you, you've got, you, like, everything I shot is in there al- except for one thing. Almost, yeah. There's, there's maybe... There's only two. Yeah. By the time we got to to your section, actually, when we get when she gets to the motel, I really love the way the story was developed. It's an unusual script because most stories about this subject, about people struggling with addiction in any in any way, are usually either a straight downward spiral or they're a kind of like unexpected sort of fireworks of everyone's happy at the end. Yeah. And and what I love about the way this story is told is is it's uncompromising. But then when you meet Leslie, when Leslie meets your character, yeah. there is a slow turn, you know, there's a slow turn towards, you know, I don't know, some sort of humanity or someone actually seeing her. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it just felt really r- the real way to tell um, the story of some degree of compassion. Yeah, so I really liked it when we got there. Right. Where there's a combination of her truly you know, or, or close to of having had enough. Yeah, yeah, she was like she couldn't get over as well. You know, there's that process of like she can't 
really pull guys anymore. She can't. Right. You, she can't hide her her uh, her hustle. Yeah. So why this this script just popped at you right away? Yeah, it did for every reason. I mean, yeah. it, it, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think it's it, it's Ryan's just a beautiful writer. He underwrites things. Wait, now has he yeah. written anything else? He has, but I hadn't read anything else. I had only read this. Um, He's now he's a really prolific writer actually, but I mean he had a he had a movie made earlier um, yeah. by Netflix, but you know I think this was the one that was came from his heart, you know. It was about his mom, yeah, kinda. and him, yeah. Riceboro, Andrea, yeah. y- you worked with years ago as well. Yeah, we did a, a, a show called Bloodline on Netflix yeah. together. And you just knew she was the one to yeah. do this. Yeah, yeah. My very first, I still got the you know the the copy. I wrote Andrea Riceboro right under the title. She's it, she's not. On paper, you'd go, oh, you know, she's from the north of England. Yeah. She's not Texan. Yeah. It, she has, it, there's a sort of absolute true life, um, just honesty about her. She yeah. can't do anything else that, you know, you say that, and you're right, a lot of actors have tricks. People yeah. talk about it. Laurence Olivier used to talk about that. Do you remember, you know that the thing? Which one? When someone said, uh, how's it going? He was the biggest star in Hollywood. Hey. He said, it's awful. It's awful. They know all my tricks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Andrea doesn't seem to have tricks. Yeah. You know, Andrea is just like a, an instrument, you know, she'll, she'll tune herself to wherever it is that, that, that we, th- we, we think the character should be and what that journey is. And then she just goes, you saw yeah. her. She yeah. just, she goes. Yeah. It was, it was, it was amazing to work with her. And, and then, so the kid too, how did you cast that kid? You knew him when I he was a him, kid? Yeah. When, so Owen, who's, it's so great seeing how he's he's huge. He's getting huge now. Yeah. But he was cast as uh, he was cast as a photo double, or just not a photo double, as a photo extra on yeah. Bloodline because he looked a bit like uh, a young Ben Mendelsohn. We needed a young Ben Mendelsohn for a picture. Yeah. And uh, and he was a high school kid in Florida. Wow. And he came in, and then a season later, uh, Glenn Kessler, who was writing the show, was like, I th- we need to do some flashbacks with young Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah. So we were like, oh, let's call that kid and hope he can act. He was brilliant. He was so brilliant. I'll tell you this. I've never seen this happen before for a realistic show like, yeah. like Bloodline. He was so good that in the second season of that show, he didn't just play the young Ben Mendelsohn. He yeah. also played Ben's son in the same season of the same show. Wow. I've never seen that before. That's crazy. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. He's sort of a, he's the real thing. And so, and casting me, I'm going to keep pressing you on this. I was your choice. You were my, I went after. I I know you went after. I was was obsessed with this choice. Oh, it's so funny because like somewhere in, in my, in, in, along the line, it got put in my head that John Hawks had turned it down. No, he did. There was an early conversation with, the casting process is Mandarin. I know. Yeah. You know, and, and, and a producer says, oh, you know, John, John's a great... And, and I love John Hawks. Sure. For me, um, Winter's Bone was, is what a big influence on me. That movie, I don't know if you yeah. saw that movie. Sure, that early, sure. Yeah. I love it. And he was so, so striking in yeah. that film. Yeah. And so uh, I think early on, there was, a, there was a, certainly a conversation of, of, oh, you know, John would be great. John, yeah, that, sure. that kind of actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the time we came to actually casting the film... Yeah. Um, I can't remember what happened. I think um, I think John was out of the picture at that point by uh, COVID. Anyway, yeah. But we hadn't we hadn't cast the film, right? And uh, it was a combination of it was a hundred percent a combination of Marin, yeah. And I think I've mentioned to you before that that, that making really be, genuinely memorable a monologue that you you gave. In oh, and sort, sort of, of trust, sort of trust yeah. which was a heartbreaker. I I must have watched it eight times oh, in yeah. a row. And uh, and then randomly, a photo of you, 
uh, from a piece that the New York Times did on you. Yeah. There's a black and white photo uh-huh. sitting in a chair, sort of half looking up. And I literally, and I, I think I sent it round to my whole producers, you know, a lot of producers involved yeah. in a movie like this. And I said, that's Sweeney. Yeah. Like, that is Sweeney. And I already <laughs> yeah. knew what I was seeing in your performance. Yeah. And it's funny because it wasn't from Glow, which is a great, and I, I, I just wasn't a Glow watcher. So yeah. I didn't know your performance. Right, right, from right. That. But from Marin. And it was from really from Marin. Sort of trust. And sort of trust. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Because, like, you know, for the whole time, I kept thinking, when I, like, when they're giving me, they gave me the script and they're talking to me and I don't know who told me the John Hawks thing because I'm like, well, he's the, I'm not that guy. No, but but not. but of course not. But then I'm judging myself and they, yeah. and I was really like, I don't see this happening. And then I was talking to my manager last night at the screening because I almost didn't do it just because it's COVID. I don't, you yeah, know, I I'm grieving. I'm you know, whatever. I'm not the right guy for this. And then uh, yeah, and then I got the text from Chelsea from Chelsea <laughs> Handler, and I'm like, what is this? The enforcer. Yeah, I and she's it. like, Michael Morris wants you to do his movie. I, uh, I think you should do it. Call him, and you don't. You just don't say no to no, Chelsea Handler. That was imperative, right there. Yeah, like she, there was no questions. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know her? Uh, she was like, she was, has been one of uh, our, my wife, and my great friends. Oh yeah, for years. Yeah, uh, she and Mary were as soon as they met. They met each other at some. I don't know, some stupid event, uh, and they just—it was just a click, you know. Yeah. What I mean, they just have, they just made each other laugh. Well, I, I had a great time doing it, and I thought it came out really nice. Now, yeah. I, but I'm curious now. So, you know, the the, the the critical reaction is great. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it was like 97 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, like 30 plus inter, uh, reviews. Yeah, getting on for 40, and and, and people really—is it really still resonated. up there? Yeah, 97. Still. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, like, okay, so what what happens with it from where from a business standpoint? So now, like, it's not really a big release. You can no. buy it. It's getting great critical acclaim. Do you are now? Obviously, Andrea is going to be you know in the game for awards of some kind. At, at the very least, indie spirit, right? SAG. I, this is my you know this is my first film. I I have no frame sure. of reference for this. So you know, and and I came into it and. It feels odd, always feels odd to talk about any of that stuff. I guess so, but, but like, you know, as I get older and as I talk to more people, there there is an intent at, at a certain point to to sort of get the movie out there yeah. more yes. and to get it recognition uh, any way you can. And, and part right. of that is, is award campaigning. But obviously we're too early in the game, but someone must be thinking about it. I hope so, because I think it's deserved. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I, I mean, if it, awards are crazy for any- This is her fucking, you know, she, this is her, this is her movie, man. Yeah. I mean, this is like where, because everyone talks about her yeah. you know, as being the thing, yeah. the real thing. Yeah. And this is, she real things the hell out of this. <laughs> she does. She really does, actually. And, and, and that's what, if they're about anything, you want awards to at least be, I mean, I don't care about who wins anything. Yeah. But, there's a nomination process, and that's really fun well, because as you you get to kind of you get to recognize a bunch of things. Sure. And so you think, well, if, if it's if it's the reasons of what what might you have missed that's really 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 powerful and challenging and yeah. a great performance, you know, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and but like, but more practically, how do we get it in more theaters? Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's really difficult. I've, I've had a crash course in this since this movie has been released. So there's this thing where we are released on um, our, at home, what they you know they call the video on demand, the streaming stuff. You yeah, know, you can get it on Apple, you yeah. get it on Amazon. Sure. And because of that, because it kept that was ha- that was released at the same day that it was released in the theaters. They call that a day and date release. Yeah. 
uh, a, there seems to be a thing in, out there in the world that movie theater chains uh, uh, don't approve of that that model. Uh-huh. They they want what's called a window where you say, okay, we're going to be only, only theaters. in theaters yeah, yeah, for a week right, or two yeah. weeks or a month. Yeah. So if you come if you come at them saying well, we're also available at home, a lot of movie chains are not interested in showing the film. That's mm. just a policy. It's nothing. They don't even think they've seen the film. They just say we can't. But what do about it. these smaller theaters? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think people have to go. You know, yeah. I think it'd be great if people went. And by the way, this is a movie shot on film, as we've said. It's designed to be. It's, it's shot in a widescreen. It's two three five, which means it's the same. It's the same sort of epic ratio that you want to see in a movie. Yeah, theater. it's great. It looks great. It really looks good on a widescreen. Yeah. So I encourage, even though I want people to see it, if home is the best way, that's the best way. But yeah, but uh, I just saw some people tweeting like the closest theaters in another state. I know. I know. I know. We're, but I mean, I think that our film distributor, you know, fell in love with the film at South by Southwest. Yeah. And they bought it for absolutely the right reasons. That you know, they didn't buy it because this was going to be you know Top Gun Maverick. They bought it because they love it. Yeah. But I think there's a reality. It seems to me about how you release something like this. I don't know. I hope. I hope there's a second life for more theaters. Okay. I, I do. Well, great job. And Thank I was uh, honored to be part of it. Well, it was an honor to have you. Thanks, really. man. Good talking to you. Thank you. There you go. Good guy. Nice guy. Talented guy. Movie's great. Two Leslie. It's in theaters and on digital, on demand now. I'm pretty good in it. I, As my friend Steve Brill, he mentioned to me that my friend Steve Brill had, was a friend of his and his wife's, and he had seen it, and I, and I was like, why didn't he text me about it? Why didn't, if he liked it, where's my buddy Steve Brill with the, uh, the text? Huh? Where's that? And then, of course, he went and mentioned it to Steve, and, he, and Steve wrote me, I just remembered... I did mean to text you last week after I saw two last week. Very moving movie. Congrats on being in that thing and sharing screen with that incredible actress. Seemed like you got to be in a sort of Sam Shepard play or play the Sam Shepard role. It's pretty cool. Best Marin performance since night of January the 16th, which is a play I did with Steve in stage troupe in college. He said, uh, I'm impressed and jealous, which is weird because I'm not an actor, but I really want to do cool shit. I said, I texted back. Thanks about the movie. I, I held my own. I think it's a good flick. And Steve said, I was so nervous watching her crush so hard and knowing you were coming up, but you did hold your own, which is sort of like lasting in the ring with Tyson or something. She was, she was just incredible. Fearless, fearsome. So congrats. I said, thanks. That's very nice. A nice exchange. But that's why I guess it was like that. I, I, did, I didn't go in nervous. I just was like, I can only do the best I can do. So... Bela Fleck is a banjo player, is the banjo player, is one of the great banjo players, has taken the instrument to new places. He's on tour right now to support his album, My Bluegrass Heart. You can go to BelaFleck.com for tour dates and tickets. He is a fan of this show. And he sent me his records and, you know, he sent me a personal correspondence. And I'm like, I got to get up to speed on Bela Fleck. I mean, I know he was great and I've heard his name forever, but I didn't know his stuff. So I had a, like, I had, I'm like, this guy wants to talk. He's the real deal. I should talk to him, but I'm going to have to listen to 900 records and figure out where he's coming from. So I did that. And here I am talking to uh, Bela Fleck. I guess mostly in terms of what I listen to banjo-wise is probably Scruggs. Well, yeah. 
And, you know, and I like those records he made with his kids. Yeah. The, with the Earl Scruggs experience or whatever uh, it was, was um, it? Review. The Earl yeah. Scruggs review. Yeah. And then I got the kids' albums, too. Yeah. You know, because that's like, I mean, it felt like they were trying to, like, you know, make, uh, make Dad sound groovy. Yeah, it was a brave move for him, too. Yeah. Um, Is that, really... Was that your guy? Well, he's a guy who turned me on. Like when you hear the when if you're going to be a banjo player and you hear Earl Scruggs, it's like uh, you turn into a zombie to looking for a banjo, trying to figure out how to do it. And it's just it has to be him. It's not just anybody. Yeah, uh, he had this magic something. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was him for me. He tr- turned the trigger for me sometime around four or five years old when I heard the Beverly Hillbillies, which makes no sense because I'm a New York City kid. Uh, Queens. Well, that was, well, that was yeah. on TV. Yeah, you know what I mean. How young? What are you? My age or older? Uh, depends on how old you are. I'm 59. <laughs> I'm an old. I'm older. I'm 64. Okay, yeah. so you're so you were catching the tail end of that show actually yeah. being on television, or were you watching it on like Channel Eleven or I something? I think it was on Channel Eleven. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and it was in the morning. I remember it was light out. <laughs> okay, so there it was repeats. Yeah, but no, but that that opening thing. I mean, I think that probably got everyone into banjo. Like yeah. anybody who's going to register banjo that doesn't grow up with a banjo or yeah. with music like that, that's where you were going to hear it. Yeah, it's one of those things with banjo where you get all these like amazing th- opportunities for the banjo, but they're couched in Southern culture and a certain kind of like um, looking down on it a little bit, like you know, like dueling banjos, for instance. Which that, that blew me away. I had that was, record right, but you know, it's it's connected to like a, a male rape scene, and then you've got you know oh, the Beverly Dal- Hillbillies, which is all about you know how dumb. Well, they're actually the smart people in the Bar- the, the yeah. country guys are the smart people, but and then there's. Uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, Foggy Mountain Breakdown. It's all connected to sort of these stereotypes. Negative stereotypes? That really s- locked this down. And when it, people forget about it, it's actually an African instrument. It's well, a, it's weird know. to me, though. Like, I think, like, <clears throat> like I didn't register uh, Deliverance. I just rewatched it. Mm-hmm. And I don't connect that music with that rape scene. Right. But I know the comedians did. And, every, like, it, it, and it also yeah. was about... Square like more, a pig. Yeah, and also morons. right. Right. And like I just remember being fascinated with the kid who was playing on the bridge and wondering whether or not he was, you know, who that guy was. Right. Do you know who he was? Uh, I know he wasn't a banjo player, and in <laughs> fact, it was a claw. He was doing claw. The the hand that you see is doing claw hammer style, and the here the banjo you hear is three finger style. Mm. So, but it was still the most compelling scene ever. It was so great. Powerful. Yeah. It, was, it changed. Yeah. Uh, it changed my life somehow because now that we talk about it, I never forget it. Yeah. And I guess the Beverly Hillbillies, I never really associated personally, but I know what you're saying is true culturally, but I don't know that I, I associated it as I got older with, with complex music, you know, with, with bluegrass music, with the music as a guitar player that, that I just can't wrap my brain around because I'm not... Uh, I don't practice enough, right? And well, I don't know how anybody gets that speed. And I never understood how banjo. Works. Well, it's a it's a trick. It's a trick. It is a trick. It is. It's it's a uh, you know because you're alternating your right hand fingers, you only have to play one third as fast and use the open strings uh, and all of these tricks of open strings that make you able to to blaze. Oh yeah. But 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 I do like to point out that banjo was like before it was a, a white Southern instrument. It was in in Louis Armstrong's first bands. It was sure. in, in early jazz. So the pigeonholing is a little irritating. Especially I'm very serious about banjo and maybe you can tell already but I, I love it so much and I hate for it to get stuck in this one uh, although fabulous part of banjo music sure that this this no blue, well, I mean, I, stuff. it seems to be your mission in life is to uh, to free the banjo or to 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 move it through everything 
Well, I, yeah. I, I think so. I was uh, growing up in the 60s. and. But what, where did you yeah. grow up? What part of Queens? Uh, I grew up in Manhattan. Um, in Manhattan. My, my mom and my grandparents were in Queens and moved there when I was pretty young. So 100th Street and West End Avenue. Your, your folks weren't uh, married? My mom and my step, my mom and my father split up when I was one or two, something like that. Did and you I, have a relationship with him? No, I didn't meet him until I was in my forties. Really? I had to, had to go find him. Yeah, wow, yeah, it's a trip. It's a trip. What? So okay. So I now, where do your your people come from? What's the? Um, well, I think Belarus is some of me some too. Of it. Oh, really? <laughs> Maybe yeah. we're really. <laughs> well, I mean, are you Jewish? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I well, mean, my mother's side. On your mother's side. Yeah. yeah my, my father's side. My father's side goes all the way back to Belarus. I did that Finding Your Roots show, so you I did. know that for so a fact. So where? Pale of Settlement, Belarus. Oh, which part of Belarus? You know, which town? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Yeah. I but, think Minsk is like our, our scene. Oh, that's it? Yeah. 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 I just know Pale of Settlement, Belarus. I, I probably do have the towns because they did a pretty thorough undertaking. So your, your dad wasn't Jewish? No. Oh. Decidedly not. Decidedly not. <laughs> <laughs> I finally met him, uh, and he was uh, he was a professor of uh, like dead languages and stuff in mm-hmm. Maryland. Yeah, it was uh, a professor of dead languages. Yeah, an interesting guy, very smart guy. Tried to be, make it as an opera singer, and he's the one that named me Bela after Bela, Bela Bartok and and Leo Shianacek and uh, all these great classical composers. But he was not around uh, in any way. Yeah. But that way, so. How does your mother account for that? What the hell could go so wrong to where you can't even engage with the guy? I think she tried. Oh, I think oh she tried. it was just him. Yeah, I think he felt like- uh, Were they married? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I have an older brother too. Oh, you yeah. do? Mm-hmm. So he hung yeah. around a little while for that guy? Uh, a, a year longer. We're a year <laughs> apart. Yeah. And then he flew the coop for whatever whatever their reasons were. But at any rate, it was. I made a few overtures and never got a reaction, so eventually I just trapped him in his lair- I went to this college and just stood at the end of the line. Did he know you were the 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 banjo master? Well, that's what I found out after uh, after meeting him and getting to know him a little bit. Yeah, um, I found my records at his house. It was bizarre. It was very very strange. Wow! Yeah. And and what, where, where is it at now? I'm pretty sure he passed. Oh, you I have even... every reason to think that he's passed at this point. I, so did, I did get to say goodbye to him at a certain point. That professor was... of dead languages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you did get to say goodbye to him. I, yeah, I was passing through, and I, I was, uh, I wanted to um, maybe introduce his grandson to him that he didn't know maybe oh, existed, wow. and uh, but so then I found him in a hospital bed. You know, oh. like at his, in his what I believe were his last days because I haven't oh, been really? able to find out whatever happened. It's been several years. You can't find out. I can't find out no bit. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's fine. Oh, but I don't think so. But I, so did he meet his grandkids? No, it didn't. It was just a little too late. Oh, I'm sorry, man. So yeah. you didn't get that. But I think it's, you know, it's okay. It, life is better, I think, the way it all worked out. Probably. Yeah. It sounds like he might have been a difficult man. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And your mother was, uh, was she musical? No. Mm-mm. No, so, but she did marry a cellist. So that was a, that was a good thing. Joe Palladino got a good Italian uh, aspect to a things. A cellist? Yeah, Canarsi. Canarsi cellist. Yeah. But do, who'd he play with? Uh, well, he went into the the Seventh Army Symphony, so he was in Germany for a long time. Uh, you playing, know, playing cello, playing cello, yeah. How that's, did that work? It's that's not, I think that's the, the way to be in the army, be in the not, band. Sure, out but of it's the, not a marching band. You're not playing outdoors. No, they, they had have a, these great orchestras. In fact, what's bizarre is like um, it turned out that one of the conductors he worked with later moved to Nashville and became the main guy in the Nashville Symphony, and uh, and conducted me. 
really? many many years. And he later. knew your stepdad. We never. I, I don't. I think. I think I got to introduce them at that point. At one point, yeah. Um, I don't think he remembered. There was a lot of people that went through the Seventh Army Symphony. Sure. Oh, okay. Apparently, it was a crack orchestra. Yeah. And so he got. Were to, they playing swing music? What were they doing? Oh no, classical. Really? Yeah. All straight classical. up classical. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so just you, what they needed in Germany. Um, Americans playing uh, playing German, German classical music. music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so you grew up with classical in the house. Yeah, yeah, but not, he, not the kind of classical my father would have wanted me to hear, probably because he liked the really wacky, harsh, you know, Hungarian and avant-garde type stuff. You know, more progressive stuff. My stepfather liked. Brahms and you know uh, Handel and right. He was a, his tastes were a little did, more more general. Did he you know? teach you how to read music? No, there, we, we didn't do music together. But I would listen to them play the music in the you know they come he'd have people come over yeah. and play string quartets on Sundays yeah. and I just listen. I just fall asleep trying to read the score, but I did just looking at the notes going up and down. Yeah, I didn't think it had anything to do with me. I wanted to go play the banjo, but I liked it. Mm. So then years later, when I did try to you know I met people who were great classical musicians and I wanted wanted to try to play with them at least i had heard i i knew how it was supposed to sound somewhat sure you know? well i mean yeah. that's what's interesting about you know some of the footage from the throwdown is that what it's called yeah throw down your heart throw down your heart is that you know you have to you studied the rhythms and and it's a much uh in some ways in terms of scales and whatnot it's a simpler undertaking right than what you used to and it's more repetitive right. but that is the sort of hypnotic effect of the original musics you know right well it's deceptive because sometimes you think something is simpler because it has less harmony but it isn't necessarily simpler it's just different you know yeah it's, it's complicated a, in a different way and there's nuance you know yeah i mean for sure i i, I mean well i'll get that in a minute so you start playing banjo when 15 15. So I was playing some guitar because I didn't have the nerve to ask for a banjo from anybody. I never thought anybody could really play it. It was just so impossible. Yeah. So I ended up with a guitar. And Were then, you in a band? Uh, no. No, just played, you know, Beatles songs and you yeah. know, stuff of folk songs of the day, you know. But you weren't some kind of wizard, huh? Oh, not at all. No, I was one of those kids who's kind of like, he likes the guitar. Right. As opposed to when I got my banjo. Okay, so I went to see my grandfather on my uh, just before I started high school. And uh, he said, hey, I, I know you like guitar. I, so I found this banjo. Your mom's dad? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great dude. And he said, I got. I, I found this at a garage sale here. Yeah. You want it? And yeah. it's like, I couldn't believe it. And just landed in my lap the day before high school started. And that began an obsessive uh, re relationship with music where I wasn't obsessive with the guitar. It, it The switch wasn't flipped. But once I had the banjo, it became everything to me. And I don't know why. Maybe part, it has something to do with the father stuff, too. It was like a need to prove worth. It became the thing that I poured myself into. Yeah. And by the time I was out of high school, I was pretty darn... I could play a lot like one, some of the really good players and went right into professional stuff. So you just... Well, there is something magical about a banjo. Yeah. Especially if you're close. Like, if you hear a recording, you don't necessarily get all of the nuance. Not just the nuance, but there's all these harmonics and the strings ring into each other. And it's like sitting in yeah. your lap and the sound is coming up at you. And I just still love just to play it. And it's like, So how'd you <laughs> learn? Uh, I started taking some lessons. First, I got the Pete Seeger book. That's the book? That was and the that book was back then. And that was enough to get you started? Well, then I started taking some lessons and I just started going through teachers kind of. It, I was moving fast. So, you know. you, so do you feel like you were a prodigy, a banjo prodigy? I was, I was because my third teacher was like 
and still one of the great banjo players of all time, this guy named Tony Trishka, who came from Syracuse, a modernist, like yeah. a crazy, free, awesome, primitive, wild, technically virtuosic player. Uh-huh. And, um, and I could play a whole lot like him by the end of high school. And really? People would say, oh, well, you guys were playing together. I couldn't tell who was who when I closed my eyes. And then I had to figure out, oh, my God, there already, there already is one of him. So now I got to find my own way. And yeah. start sounding different, but I went right into professional groups out of high school. Out of high school, so you mm-hmm. out of high school. You didn't go to college. No. Mm-hmm. So you get out of high school mm-hmm. and you're a banjo wizard. What year is it? I'm uh, seventy six. So what are you gonna do? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that was the quest. Like everybody would tell me, including my other teachers, like, yeah. you're not gonna make a living playing the banjo. It's not gonna happen. So you better learn a bunch of instruments and maybe you could get a job in a country band playing fiddle, mandolin, banjo, pedal steel. I was like, I don't think I wanna you want, do like, that. Be like one of the Mandrells or Marty Stewart or yeah. somebody just kinda <laughs> jumping around in an outfit. Yeah, yeah I wasn't, it wasn't me. So, so I just, I joined a band. I just got into bands and I follow a band through to its, you know, uh, a better band and but like so you're in queens we're in manhattan at this point okay yeah. you're in manhattan you're a banjo player just yeah. out of high school and right. you're an inspired banjo player what kind of band bluegrass band but there's there's this progressive bluegrass thing has been going on for a long time so there there were bands where i could do like i have to point out i got my mind blown when i heard chick korea at the beacon theater which was a couple of blocks from where i lived at at that point yeah and, and i wanted to play that kind of music once and i you heard did do that, a record with him i did yeah several records we have one in the can too that's going to come out oh, at some point yeah yeah it was a big loss it real meant a true mentor and a genius cat to be around what was know? it about chick korea's sound that what, what was it about what he did well you know there's a lot of kinds of jazz yeah and some of it is like on the back of the beat and kind of sleepy and yeah. loungy and some of it is like when when you, when I heard somebody play like with this forward lean, this Latin yeah. energy, I yeah. was like, oh, I could relate to that. I could see somehow that working on the banjo, and it just again it clicked for me, and it had the same impact on me as hearing Earl Scruggs of like, I don't know what that is, but I want to know, you know. Charlie Parker had the same impact because he played with a lot of ferocity, forward lean, you know, yeah, yeah. rhythm really, yeah. and I think banjo is a is a percussion instrument as and a music and a you know a melodic instrument, so you have. You know, if you get turned on by rhythm, it's a good good instrument. Yeah, if you but, can yeah. get into that groove. Well, yeah, I guess there's a banjo groove mm-hmm. that's, uh, I think everyone's sort of familiar with the bluegrass banjo right. groove. Yeah. But then you kind of move it around. But, so you're in these bands. So you're saying there was a a, a kind of um, re a, a progressive bluegrass music in the As long as I've been 70s? around. It was already firmly established. All, all these is that long, great oh, musicians. With, yeah. Is that sort of alongside of that first, Alt country, like, well, there's a guy named John Hartford who wrote the song "Gentle on My Mind," but he yeah. was actually a progressive bluegrass creator. What 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 does it mean to be a progressive bluegrass player? Uh, it means that you don't play old, you don't just play the old cabin home on the hill. You you look for ways to like you're influenced by the Beatles and you're influenced by Led Zeppelin and you're inter- influenced by everything around you and you include it in your music and um, and it makes for personal music. It's not a, it's not a museum yeah. thing or a, a carbon copy of a, another time. It's you being you, and that's been the key to bluegrass surviving. In my opinion, is people making it their own and making it new periodically. Yeah, and that's uh, I like. It's a fun thing to be part of that that side of it. Like, Would I, I be able to tell? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, I well, if know, you like Flatten Scruggs, like if you like Earl Scruggs, you know what that sounds like. And that would be, yeah, you know, in the 60s, they tried some Bob Dylan songs and they did some experimenting. Sure, I can tell when when people are playing covers. Yeah. yeah but is there... Is but there, no, there's a vibe to Bill Monroe and Flatten Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers and Jimmy Martin, all these cats that, you know, it's like if you like old country music, yeah. you like, you know, you sure. don't like the new slick stuff, but you like... Uh, uh, you know, Patsy Cline or you like, you know. That's way back. But I mean, but bluegrass is sort of of its own in country, it seems. It used to be the same thing back, you know, when you go back to the 40s and 50s, it was all on the same stations, but it got separated out and it became, uh, you know, more of a particular thing for yeah. the folks that like that sort of thing rather than a pop centrist thing, which it was right. before. So it wasn't about, uh, so it seems like a lot of bluegrass wasn't about songwriting, it was about playing. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I think no. the great bluegrass book is full of great songs, but they're of a certain perspective, a certain time, and yeah. they tell the story of a person that grew up in this place. Yeah, and so they're you know they're very true, they're very real, and but um, I think there's a lot of weak bluegrass songs out there. There's a lot of weak bluegrass playing out there, and is it, there? It is. And How I'll, can you fake that shit? <laughs> that's the problem. You can't. But people don't already. <laughs> if you don't know what it's supposed to sound like, you don't know what it could sound like. So you got a lot of folks that you know would like to play it, and that's cool. But they can't represent it at its highest level. Have you played with Steve Martin? Yeah. How's he? He's good. Yeah. He's really good. Okay. He's very creative. Yeah. He's always looking for his own way. It's a way to do it, and uh-huh. um, he's not trying to imitate anybody. He's, Does he ever uh, ask you for advice? Yeah, uh, we're on a. Uh, I'm on his board. He gives yeah. away money to poor, poor, uh-huh. poor banjo players yeah. that are that are really, really great. He feels like it takes as much work to you know to to play the banjo as it is to you know be a scientist. Well, or he loves it. A doctor, and they don't get paid. You don't get paid commensurately for it. So he started the Steve Martin Prize and put together a team of folks like Tony Trishka. We were talking yeah. about and me and others to, yeah. to help them figure out who to give it to. It's pretty cool. Tell me about that guy, though, the guy who you said is kind of out there, the guy that you were playing with oh. in high school. Oh, you mean John Hartford? No. Yeah. Oh, well, John Like, Har- like what do you mean? Like, he- I didn't play with him, but I, he was a hero. I mean, he just started doing songs about people smoking dope, and he did songs oh. about, you know, real life stuff, but he, he had it in a bluegrass uh, framework, and it was it's, it's an album called... Uh, uh, steam-powered aeroplane that is, is just one of the great classic things that just turned bluegrass to this new place. And then there was a band that came not too long after that called New Grass Revival yeah. that Sam Bush uh, uh, ran, and uh, and I joined that band when I moved to Tennessee um, in uh, 81. And is that before the, the Flectones or after? Yeah, Flectones was after nine years of being in Newgrass. And Newgrass was a very progressive, like we did long jams and um, different kinds of Right, unique kinds of but things. But your first few records are pretty straightforward, no? Yeah, more or less. I was always pushing, like I recorded Chick Corea song on my first solo album. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, but, didn't, I didn't start out as a straight guy. Like I moved to Kentucky and then I got into it. I was like a progressive New York Yankee banjo player. Yeah. And I was trying to, I was like, I don't want to be a Yankee banjo player. I want to like be like a Earl Scruggs. I want to be like J.D. So how, but how, okay, but Yankee banjo player, meaning that you were a mimic? Like I didn't really know how it was supposed to go. You know, there's gatekeepers and all these different kinds so, of music. And so like, you moved? I moved, yeah, I moved to Kentucky. After how long? How, like after uh, your first record 81. or before your first record? It was, uh, no, it was 79. So it was three years after high school I moved down there. To, to, to get the real groove. Yeah. So that was, the, that was your first grail. Yeah. So you go down there yeah. with your proficiency. That's pretty impressive. Right. So do you, do you get into like sort of banjo wars? Uh, I had, uh, you know, the folks that knew 
yeah. tell me I was not, not not all that special, you know, and then I had a lot of things I needed to get together if I was going to be any good. And no shit. Like, who are those things. people? Well, they're like the gatekeepers. They're like the who people the ga- that know. Who are the banjo gatekeepers? <laughs> we you, need to know. If you were me, you would have found out. But I, they'd come and they'd say, okay, you know, you're miking your banjo wrong. Your banjo sounds like shit. You know, you, you don't have good tone. And these yes, are you old banjo? Your they're people that were in the banjo community. And yeah. they were, uh, and I got some really good advice from They became some of my good friends. Like Scruggs? No, not not players so much. Well, there, there was a guy named Harry Sparks and okay. Harry Bickle in yeah. Louisville, and they were they were guys that uh, really knew and really were supportive of keeping you know the great things about bluegrass together. Which and okay, then so the, the god musically down there was a guy named J D Crow, and J D just passed this last year. Uh, he was the he was a machine. He was just a well, he's just a glorious banjo player uh-huh. and in, an, in an old school style, like coming out of Scruggs. But he um, and and progressive in his way. But really, really, the thing about him was his sense of time and tone. And I didn't, I couldn't, you know, you couldn't hold a candle to it. Nobody could. It was amazing. But he couldn't do what I did. But I don't know that he would want to. He was authentically himself. Yeah, he, he was wasn't awesome. uh, like there. I guess that that must be the sort of thing. Is that you know you get these guys that are dug into themselves. But, you know, it's enough because nobody sounds like them. You're and supposed to be yourself, right? That's the You idea. are, but, like, I think that virtuosos, uh, it's trickier to yeah. find yourself because of your proficiency. I, I think sometimes mm-hmm. you discover your authentic self through limitation. That's exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So when you go down there, like, outside of miking your banjo, and when you have to adjust a banjo, it's all those screws around it? Yeah, there's all kinds of ways you can change the sound. And yeah. and those guys set you straight on that stuff? Well, I finally got an old banjo. This this banjo that I still have. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, these banjos that were made in the 30s are like the whole holy grail. Yeah. Earl played one. He played a Granada, but these were Gibson Master Tones from the 1930s. Uh-huh. And they made them right, and they had a sound and a, thick, a depth and a clarity, and... Um, Nobody's ever touched them. So uh, once I got down there, I realized uh, I needed one of those, and I got one, and then these guys helped me set it up and get it. So this is like the Stradivarius of banjos. Yeah, yeah, and they're like $100,000 items if you get one with a without the original neck. And, yeah. Um, which is okay, because some of the old necks don't hold up that well. Uh-huh. So you can get, but- uh, $100,000. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, for a good, good one. Guitars are a lot more than that now, you know. The old ones. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm not paying for a guitar that much, <laughs> but I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can spend some money on a guitar. I tell you, Jason Isbell sp- spent some real money on that 59 Les Paul. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> you friends with him? Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah, we did something. I did a plate on something for him recently for uh, Georgia voting rights. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You play with his, his wife's a fiddle player. I, I know her. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. Abby and I hung out. My wife is a banjo player, too, yeah. and we hung out with them at the Grammys one year when we all won and got stuck in the line together, and we've known each other. Oh, that's since. great. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy. Solid really, songwriter. Really cool dude. Yeah. I like that he's not afraid to speak out about his views about things. He's I know. very it's, active on Twitter. It's and ballsy. Yeah. Yeah. For, from that community, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. So, all right, so you, get, you figure out how to mic your banjo and make it sound different. So, what in your style at that time... Needed to be relaxed or tightened. It needed to be t- everything needed to be tightened. <laughs> everything was because in New York it was all like cause all of these sort of bluegrassers that came out of the jazz time. You know, they they were all about the ideas, and there was a phenomenal bunch of musicians. People like Andy Statman and Tony Trishka and Kenny uh-huh. Kosek. Well, let me ask you real yeah. quick before I lose it because yeah. we're talking fast. Is that is there is the 
like you know, I probably could have watched a Ken Burns doc about this, but was there alongside of the country tradition of banjo playing? Is there a, a, a banjo style that originated in jazz? Well, yeah, the four string stuff. Okay, you know that's the stuff. Mm. That's the and 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 it also evolved that was the into Dixieland this Dixieland stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if you're from New Orleans, you don't yeah. like that term. You would call it New Orleans music. Okay, but um, yeah, but evolved into what's maybe thought of more crackerjack banjo playing. Guys uh-huh. like Eddie P. Buddy just you see them in yeah, the old yeah. movies, you know, in their show offs uh, with a flat pick. Okay, they have this incredible technique. They're like with a jangoing flat pick. it. Yeah, J- like almost like Django Weinhardt kind of guitar playing. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, exactly. Those uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. those flurries yeah, of yeah, chords yeah. up the neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, an yeah. amazing technique. Um, yeah, but then it kind of died out. Like when when the guitar came into jazz, banjo pretty much died an instant death because black folks um, were happy to see it go. They they connected it to slavery. Huh. A lot of white folks put on blackface and sang songs about how great it was on the old plantation, you know, and there's all these connections and uh, racist images for them. They wanted to get away from it. So when but, the guitar showed up, it was like, let's do that. Let's sure. get rid of this banjo thing. And then it sort of got excised from the black community. But, it, but it's interesting because it, it's interesting how quickly, um, you know, I talked to Taj Mahal once, right? So he... Banjo man. Yeah. As well. Yeah. As other things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like he picked up some old, you know, crappy K guitar he used to have in the garage. You know, we were talking about Skip James and he was able to pick that guitar up and within really, you know, two seconds go all the way back to Africa with those notes, yeah. you know, and, and you could hear it immediately. And, and but oddly, you know, the most effective way to sound uh, truly African is with a banjo. Uh, in terms of those types of, of runs of notes. Well, yeah, there's just a tone yeah. that's, you know, when you know what that sounds like, you know that the banjo sounds like that. Right, you know? it's if true. If you don't know that, you think it sounds like a, a white Southern thing, which is, again, a great musical part when of When did you know tradition. that about the banjo? I, I think I knew it kind of, you know, you know it in your head, but you don't know it in your body. And I knew that even as before the end of high school, I knew it came from Africa. But Did it didn't you... seem to have that much to do with me at the time because I was trying to learn this bluegrass yeah, language. Right. And, and stuff. Did, did you ever take it upon yourself to learn the four string riffs? I wasn't interested. Um, Still? I really wasn't Could you do interested. it now? No. Mm. I mean, I would learn the four string things on the five string. Right. Yeah, I would do that. Yeah. So you can do those yeah. chord runs? Some of them. Yeah. I have a sort of some workarounds. I mean, it's not really what the five string does best, but there's some ways. Because I'm using three finger picks all the time. So and, oh, and that was those a flat flurries, pick thing. Yeah, it's a different technique. It's almost like a mandolin thing. Yeah. Huh. Well, very similar. Huh. Yeah. So, right. all right. So you go to Kentucky and you get this, you, you, you learn how to, to, to tighten up. It's all about time, taste, you know, the tease, the t- taste, tone, time technique. Yeah. yeah. And, and these guys play like, you know, metronomic. They're capable of playing much more metronomic than I was because, like I said, up north, it was about the That's idea. That's the amazing thing about it, right? Jeez, that well, pace, man, that pace. But up north, people were like, what kind of crazy idea can you come up with? And down south, it was like, can you play in time? Yeah. They're two different points of view. Right. And so I was trying trying to get uh, get to a point where uh you know I could do both. Yeah. That was my goal. Yeah, and you got it? I think so. I mean more or less there was a lot of people stopping using banjo in the bluegrass world to to make their music like Tony Rice was a great guitar player. Yeah. He wasn't using banjo. David Grisman had this quintet playing With the mandolin. Jazz. Yeah, but he wasn't using banjo. Like, and I was like if I think if I could play with that kind of a time and still have this technique maybe I could find my place in well, that community. Well, why do you think they wanted to get rid of the banjo cuz it overtook everything and it, and it, and it made the music what they were trying to sort of get out from under? Partly. Mm. Which is what I did when I went to the Flectones is drop all the other blues 
bluegrass instruments, but it also was because there really wasn't anybody yet who could do that stuff on the banjo and fit into that kind of a group. And what, so that take, was, take it was down, a whole. Take down the banjo-ness? Not just take down the banjo, but play the kind of intricate music that they were trying to play that mm. was moving in a jazz direction. It wasn't really... Uh, modern jazz. Well... I mean, but jazz, but not yeah. like, they weren't trying to encapsulate a New Orleans sound, which is the original banjo jazz, right? No, I mean, they, they were trying to move into something. Like, Grisman was really into, I, I would say if you listened to it, you'd say it was more like a Django, you know, okay. coming out of Django, a combination of jazz and Django's music. Okay. And, and Tony Rice, too, was a little more modern. He was he was maybe more into 60s jazz and, you know, or uh, not Ornette, but uh, uh, McCoy Tyner type oh, yeah. stuff. And he was into things like that. And he was figuring out how to play that on a bluegrass, with a bluegrass technique on the guitar. Because I was in the Flectones records, and there's some of them where it made me wonder if you'd ever played with Zappa. I wish. <laughs> because there were some runs yeah. like that, because in, in the production and in the way that you guys were handling the instruments yeah. and, and in the uh, composition orchestration, they were so tight. And he liked yeah. to play shit that was fast. Oh, yeah. And, and, and organized. Yeah. You know, it almost seemed like, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know Zappa well enough. He must have played with a banjo player at some point. We would have had to just grow, you know, being because it just seems like something he would do. Yeah. You well, know? even John McLaughlin did a banjo solo on a, on a record somewhere back there in the past. You can really? find it. Yeah, it's a guitar banjo, but it sounds awesome. So sounds when cool. all these guys are kind of you know moving away from the banjo and you're trying to integrate it into what they're doing, that's when you put the flat tones together. No, it was some years later. Oh. I, at first, I had to kind of dig my way in, and I wanted to get in with the Cats, and those okay. were, those were the Cats. Was Grisman and those guys. Grisman and yeah, and Sam Sam Bush li still liked the banjo, but um, Tony Rice was like the holy grail. We're using that word a lot. That's uh, all right. We're using that yeah. a lot today, but yeah. it's it's true he was the cat you wanted to play with if you if you played anything in this music those two guys and yeah and so i wanted to get in with those guys and and i managed to find my way also jerry douglas were you Dobro just like, would mm -hmm. you just annoy him did you um <laughs> just hang around well, well a great a great thing to do is invite someone to play on your record yeah you know, okay. if you've actually got someone who's going to pay to have you do a record then they'll go you know it's a small investment of time we'll yeah. do the session spend a couple of days yeah and then so i would invite over my my grade yeah and say is there any chance you would play on this record and then send it say yeah okay we'll play we'll play and a couple of tracks and then pretty soon they'd say yeah this guy's okay oh you know, yeah and then, and then they'd ask you to do something and then you're in okay and that's the so way. when did you know that you'd <laughs> arrived into that pocket that you wanted to be in oh and tony rice hired me to play on a on one of his albums and mm. it was the still one of the greatest experiences ever yeah which album uh cold on the shoulder yeah yeah why was it so great? Just because you worshipped the guy? No, because he like he played with Crow, the okay. J.D. Crow okay, guy we we're right. talking about, and sure. he um he knew how to make a, make it effortless to play banjo. He had a, an accompaniment. He's a great soloist, one of the greatest soloists in in bluegrass guitar, uh -huh. but um he knew how to accompany in such a way that it was like flying. You just felt like you were flying, and you could do things that you couldn't, like a great jazz drummer or any kind of great drummer or any great rhythm player that knows how to put his energy to making the other people sound good he had this yeah, uncanny gift you know that's the thing I, I always envy about guys who can really play and, and, and sort of get on like because it feels like a lot of banjos are like flying that you know once you figure out how to do that yeah. and you get on that roll it just never stops it's addictive like, uh, yeah I could imagine that but yeah. like with guitar I'm like a, a kind of you know crunchy you know, my rhythm is is specific. My my, and I don't I don't pick well. I do okay, but but I'm not I'm I'm not uh, you know claiming to be any kind of musician. But I do envy whatever practice it takes to get to that place. I just never did it, and I couldn't do it. 
Yeah, but it's important to you. It's like a part of who you are, right? It so is. That's the thing. But I've had to settle into whatever dirty kind of guitar playing I do as my limit to a degree, as opposed to compare myself, you know, to you know, twelve year olds on uh, on Instagram. Yeah. Well, fast fingers is not necessarily the only goal. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got yeah, It's supposed to be an expression of you and who I know. you are. Well, that's I, what music is. I've accepted right? that, yeah. Yeah. and and I believe that I am there to a degree. Yeah. But but for some reason, there's still something about fast fingers that seems very important it's in appealing. my brain. It's appealing, but whoever you are, there's somebody faster. And like, I go through the same thing. Like, you I do? wish I could play like McLaughlin. You know, I wish I could play like, Ingve, you know, some of these yeah. cats that, that just the, On the finger banjo, speed. You mean? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I'm, my, I'm, I've come to terms with, I, there's a certain speed. Like in my 60s, I don't think I'm going to get any faster at this point. <laughs> so, and the, yeah. the, the true speed of, um, you know, the great yeah. electric guitar players in particular, or piano players, you know, saxophone It's players. like, I don't even want to do that though. I don't like, yeah. you know, but there, because it's still about phrasing. I mean, that's well, sort that's of my other thing, thing, you know. Is do you really want to listen to that? That's what I've also come, maybe yeah. it's a justification for my lacks, but I go, you know, I don't really want to hear people play at that speed all the time I mean, it's amazing i love it and i'm a, but i want to hear them playing some great notes that mean something and i want to hear some heart so i'm getting more comfortable yeah. about moving in that direction so when when because like it seems like the 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 harmonica player on the flectones is like that on the, the first record the yeah. first two records howard levy holy yeah. shit man yeah. what is that it's a blues harp. That's the crazy thing. And he's playing all the notes that don't appear to be on the harp. He, it's, he, it's he has really... a system called overblows where he blows the notes to different pitches. Uh-huh. And uh, he can play in any key on any harp. It's bizarre. It's and, amazing. And that whole band, like, you know, I could feel that was sort of in terms of like, uh, you know, tight kind of explorations of, of that jazz trip. That's where it was happening, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody had different strengths. So it was yeah. like, how can we put something together here that's really yeah. honest and uh, all of us? So, you know, Victor and Future Man had this incredible funk part of their playing. Uh, yeah. Howard has all this Bulgarian music, all this uh, yeah. classical music, all yeah. this jazz. I had my bluegrass to bring into it. And if we could all be ourselves together in the room, it was going to be something, you know. And it worked. Yeah. And then I would write these complex pieces and they were the guys that could, like when I try to teach these things to my bluegrass heroes, yeah. they'd be like, Tony Rice had this voice like Miles Davis, too many brains, man, too many brains. Get rid of some of these parts, man. I'd be like, ah. And then, uh, so I, I was simplifying to, to yeah. record with those guys. Then I met these cats, Victor Wooten and Future Man and Howard, and it, they were like, what else you got? You know, you yeah. got any more? Yeah. And it was like, oh, and then I got to work on creating a lot of, and doing a lot of writing. Yeah. Because they could do anything that I could imagine. Now, at this point where you're playing with these guys, you're, are you building an, a, an audience? Yeah. So when I left Newgrass Revival, after, you know, putting this thing together sort of as an idea, I decided, okay, I'm ready to like try this thing and go out and fight the good fight and maybe, you know. With the flectones? With the flectones. Yeah. Maybe this is impossible. This will never be a big thing. But the maybe fight? 20 years from now, maybe I'll, you know, if I commit to being a band leader, maybe some. And, you know, maybe I'll be able to survive and, yeah. I, and I won't be able to hold on to these guys, but I got to, you know, I'll just be a band leader and I'll try to do this new, yeah. new banjo thing. And then it just took off. Yeah. It just like within the first three years, it was, uh, we were on Johnny Carson, we were on Arsenio, we were, you know, all kinds of stuff happened. We were in at Carnegie Hall for the first time, opening up for people and it just ex- kind of exploded and it still makes almost no sense that it would people have. People love the banjo. Well, I think they like to see the banjo with like... 
black and white guys t- but, playing together, funk, bass, and sure. okay, banjo, yeah, right, and yeah, yeah. harmonica, yeah. and, uh, yeah, and, and not it. what they expected. And right. it, it kind of presented as a uh, uh, a novelty trip. That's why Johnny Carson would put it on. And, uh-huh. and then, um, then, But then the music was, there was enough music to make you maybe come back and listen again. And if you listened a few times, maybe you might start leave, you know, keeping it in your life. And are is, you selling records? Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah, for that time. Yeah, I think there was some... You know, a couple hundred thousand type things. Yeah, and yeah. when did you start winning Grammys? It took a long time. Oh, it did. <laughs> they called me the Susan Lucci of the Grammys for a while. Really? But yeah, then you must I think have, it was you... seven or eight or, you know, that we were nominated. But then all of a sudden it started happening and uh, it was, you know. So how many surprising. records did you do with the Flectones? Oh, we've done a lot. Uh, you still work with them? Uh, we haven't recorded lately, but we get together and play. Oh, yeah, you know, same guys? Um, we're back to the original group. What happened was uh, Howard left after three years out of boredom. He was bored with us at the yeah. time. But, uh, no, I, and he I went, apologize, where did Howard. he go? Uh, he just went out into freelance stuff, you know, doing a lot of different stuff, his own music. Yeah. He played with Kenny Loggins for a while. Huh. Um, Paquito de Rivera, you know, jazz stuff. But uh, then we got uh, Jeff Coffin, and Jeff played saxophone with us, and it yeah. became more of a funk driven sex involved thing and then um then uh when uh leroy died and uh, dave matthews band because we used to open up for dave a lot yeah. um he joined he took that slot so he's been with dave matthews ever since and that that we took a few years off and then we asked howard if he wanted to come back and he was he was into it huh. so. i'm not sure like you, you know i'm very uh weird about dave matthews but i have i don't know if i can name one of his songs that's yeah. the weird thing like there's something about me and my judgmental ass that uh, I don't know what it is. Well, but... we all do that, but <laughs> but the the truth is, the less you do that, the more stuff there is to enjoy. But I'm I'm very guilty of very you know of having very Catholic tastes. Well, if it isn't this, I don't want to hear. Yeah, it. like what ones? Yeah. Well, I mean about I mean it's oddly enough about bluegrass. If we're talking about traditional bluegrass, I want it to be flat and scruggs. And yeah, yeah. I want it to be that. If yeah. we're talking about jazz, I want kind of blue, or I want you know yeah. Coltrane. You know the classics. We're talking about fusion. I want it to be Weather Report or, or Return to Forever. I don't yeah. want to hear the other. You know, but but I've gradually it's occurred to me. How about that, that it, in in a silent way, man? How oh about come that? on, man! Damn, this stuff is you know you can't be beat. But uh, yeah, but I've just realized that if I lighten up, I can enjoy a lot more music and that be so. Yeah, I guess so that's what I got to do. I mean, I'm I'm running out of time. I should probably do like I can take it in, man. It's mm-hmm. like you know, I I really can. I can take it in, like, you know, even like, you know, re-engaging with your stuff, because, you know, you sent me that package of records, and it took me a while, and I'm like, you know, what do I got to know here? Because I like country, I like Scruggs, I like banjo to a degree, but am I going to listen to banjo all day? I don't know. But oddly, in, in the process of listening to your stuff, the stuff I could listen to over and over again, where, you know, the Flectones was... was was good. I, I mean, I appreciate the the music. I, I know that it's great, but the stuff you did with the Indian musicians, oh yeah, like that, like and the classical stuff, like mm-hmm. and I can listen to bluegrass and that's fine, you know. I but I, there's part of me that's sort of like I get it, you right. know. I know what this is, right? And it's enjoyable, but but the stuff you did with Chick Corea, right? And the stuff you did with uh, Josh Bell, you know, that interpretation of a, that kind of almost American classical stuff. Mm-hmm. That I thought, you know, I could I could do that. Like I could find myself listening to that again. Yeah. And the Indian stuff, I love that shit. Yeah, me too. But so, yeah. like, how after the Flectones, you, you're moving through all these other things, but it still seems like you're 
you're a banjo missionary you're trying to to uh to uh uh validate this instrument right in every er, every way possible yeah in fact i avoided bluegrass for a long long time yeah yeah and i'm only just came back to it this year with the new record right yeah which you know what's it called my bluegrass heart yeah and uh i don't know if you know chick korea had a record called my spanish heart are you just was that his last record no it was quite a ways back uh because i i had the last one i know he he passed away before i could talk to him really yeah but uh no he he now i I always thought he was a latin guy because all of the spain and all this latin Uh stuff that he would do but when i got to know him i discovered he was an italian guy from chelsea massachusetts and i always thought it was interesting that we all think of chick korea and we even won a latin grammy together for our album even neither of us are latin you know uh, does anyone know this i I, no, we didn't mention it <laughs> but, that, that wouldn't have been the night. But I thought there was a parallel um, yeah. because I'm a banjo player from New York City. Play, you know, that came into bluegrass. The yeah. bluegrass is going to be part of what I do, no matter whether I want it to be or not. It's just in there. So um, nature of I the thought instrument. There was a cert- yeah, and and um, I love it. You know, it's great. It's really a great thing. I'm proud of it. But like when you make decisions around taking the instrument to a different place, which you seem to have done over and over again, like with with the flat tones, and then you know, I don't know what came next. Was it classical? Um, well, I think uh, I think I was maybe after. Uh, it's all happening at the same time. I, I have this pal uh, Edgar Meyer, who's a great yeah. classical musician as well as a lot of other things, yeah. and he was the first musician, like truly bodacious classical musician that I knew that was kind of in my age group and he started showing me Bach stuff and like sitting down and giving me the time did you know how to read music then no I still don't read I I use this banjo tablature it's very slow but I've I've got a workaround basically never tried to read music I tried (laughs) but uh, no the problem is that the banjo the way it's tuned there are, you know, there's a lot of different places to play the same note. Oh, okay. Like, and the distance could be this far. I've got them holding my hands yeah. three feet apart yeah. for, to find the same note. Right. And then you're going to play 16 notes in, a, in, a, in four or five seconds. So how are you going to sight read that? So you've yeah. got to know what, you got to know where the note is more than you have to know what the note is. Yeah. So if you see the patterns, you see the numbers... Then you can you can just I can just read right, it, okay. but I have to I have to arrange the tablature like that whole classical record was a big job because I had to you know arrange the tablature. Which one, the one with Josh? Uh, yeah, that yeah. one. So that if you don't want to be bored and get sick and tired of your trip, you got to go find new stuff. So that sort you of up. that's also what drove you then. I think it's a little bit of uh, attention deficit disorder. You know, you just if you're. But that makes sense to me if you're a pure music guy. Yeah, I you mean, know what I mean. A lot of a lot of people. Bored. Yeah, but but I mean, you're in a world of 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 music where. I don't know what the difference is, but it's not like, you know, no producers telling you like, you know, we got to do that song over and over again. I'm the one that says, I'm the one that says, let's do it over and over again because I want to get it really good. No, no, I mean like to sell records. I mean like we want this to sound the same. We want the new record to be like the one that sold a bunch of records. Right. Whereas like it seems like in the world of musicians you're in, it's like, where can we take this thing? Yeah, we would avoid all those. Like for instance, we wouldn't, we had sort of a hit, like a a VH1 hit of a tune called Sinister Minister. It was instrumental, but it did really well. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't even play it. That was the the Black Tones? Yeah, we wouldn't even play it at gigs for a while we just got tired of it and just we were always like people would say when they came to see us the first time that it was just so new and special and then when we came back the next year if we played the same stuff it wouldn't be new and special right. again so when we came back we'd make sure we had a whole different set set list year after year and uh so they would have a possibility of having that experience you know over and over again with the same band yeah that it wouldn't be you wouldn't know what was coming 
um, which is not the way you build a music career. Really, I've discovered, you know, that yeah. that, that people want to hear the hits. They want to. <laughs> you never yeah. played in Sinister Minister. I can't believe you never did that. We came to see you. We came all this way, you know. Mm. So now I've lightened up. And Chick Corea was he would didn't want to play Spain, and when he did, he would play a screwed up version of it with all the wrong notes because he was so sick of it. But then later in his life, he was like, "Yeah, let's play Spain. We're going to play Spain. We'll play it right. You yeah, know, let's do it. You know, yeah, give them what they want." Well, he's half, you know, thrilled at a certain point in your life that something connected like that in a more of a mass way, you know, yeah. and not set, not not ashamed of it, but yeah. proud of it, you know. So, all right, so you're saying the African thing, the classical thing, and the Indian thing that all happen simultaneously it doesn't look just that ongoing. Right. You know, you, what's interesting? You're trying to learn stuff. Yeah, I know, but like, like tell me a little bit about that Indian thing because I'm kind of like fascinated with Indian music. Oh man, and you know, I you know, I there's something about meditative kind of repetitions that like I can listen to it all day long. Yeah. And I like that record. So yeah. what, well, how'd um, that come together? Uh, Edgar, I was telling you about Edgar Meyer. Yeah. We had written a piece, a, a banjo concerto, a, a, a duo concerto, bass banjo concerto for the Nashville Symphony. Did he, he, Was he one of those on the three banjo player records? No, he's, he's a bass player. Oh, what's that one with the three vendors? That's player? Tony Trishka, who I was telling you about, okay. and Bill Keith. Yeah, yeah, Man, yeah. you really do your homework. I, was I thought there was going to be a guy over here, like, with a, you know, with a uh, list for you of no, everything. No, 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 I was know. listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, you. so. Well, thank you for that. So, anyway, uh, we had written a piece, and the Nashville Symphony built a new hall, and they wanted Nashville composers to write a piece for the new, the new hall. Yeah. And so, they asked us to do it, and we said, well, we just did something for you guys, and they said, well what if it's a triple concerto? And so we started looking at who we might want to do that with, who mm. we could learn from. And yeah. we had uh, on the list, it was like Bobby McFerrin and Wynton Marsalis and our, and our favorite pick was Zakir Hussein. Yeah. Zakir is like, this guy we always wanted to have time with. Is he with. the sitar guy? No, he's the tabla, the tabla, tabla guy. god. Yeah. Oh. And so, and, and he's the guy we were able to, to get, um, you know, he's the guy we most wanted to learn from because mm. he had the most information that we didn't have. And so we Those started rhythms? writing with the rhythms, but also, I mean, the, the album was called The Melody of Rhythm. There's a lot of melody too, you know. It's, oh, because, yeah, it does, it, it actually has notes, the, the tabla. Well, the tabla yeah. does, but yeah. Indian music, I mean, he's yeah. not trapped on the tabla just because he plays the tabla. He, right. a, he knows that music in, in, inside out. So we started writing this classical work that used Edgar's harmonic knowledge to try and figure out how to use these Indian rhythms mm. uh, and and classical harmony and um, created a, a whole thing. And then we started touring with Zakir and that led to knowing a lot of the other great uh, Indian players and going over to India a good bit and um, and uh, just experience. In fact, last night, Zakir and a, a bunch of world-class players came to see my bluegrass band in in, uh, in San Francisco, in Oakland. Yeah. It was real sweet. They so, live up there? Uh, he lives there. Yeah, and, and they, the, these the tabla player or the, the, the tabla player who played yeah. sitar on that one, the one you put out. Who played the? Sitar? Uh, there was no sitar in that. There was none. Uh, a VM bot who played a yeah. slide guitar. That, that sounds that's like it. that's yeah, it. VM no bot. sitar yeah, player. No, not he. That would sound like sitar, but and that's it. That, and yeah. he's playing it in an Indian style. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, obviously it fooled me. I didn't realize it would because uh, I was wondering about it. Because I heard that I'm like, hey, they got a like a dobro player on this, right? No, it's that's this guy. Uh, he's an amazing musician, yeah. And so just starting to interact with those guys and realizing that banjo worked really well with those instruments. It's a cousin, and they liked it. They were like, well, it sounds it's like one cousin. of our cousins of our. And they might even claim it and say, no, it comes from 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 India first, not not Africa. Well, it seems like there is like it seems like there is some form of of banjo in China. Yeah, and one in India, yeah. and then several in Africa. That's right. That you, you know, that I guess Middle East too. Yeah, if you're going to go to primitive instruments, you're going to either have a gourd or a, or a drum. 
that you're going to put stuff on. I don't know when they started emptying things and making holes, but it seems like a lot of that stuff is just strings over something that has a tone of its own. That's right. It's the most natural thing in the world. Right. But it's neat. That skin has a sound to it. You know, that that vibrating membrane has a thing. Yeah. That's That's, I mean, that's what makes it different. But, but I, again, like, I think it's sort of uh, uh, amazing that it, it, it seems like you're journey in life is to you know, to demystif or to de hillbillyize yeah i mean while while well, like, i have to point out to people regularly that i do love hillbilly music and bluegrass it's yeah. like i wouldn't play banjo if it wasn't for that of course but i think i got tired of being laughed at as a teenager walking down the street and people sell it saying squeal like a pig or yeehaw right and i was like very serious about the banjo and i didn't like i didn't like that so i think um, i car- carried that through like i wanted to I had something to prove between that and my parent situation you know i yeah. had something to prove so uh, that's what i tried to do but yeah but it's sort of like it, it, but it makes perfect sense in that it, it's the instrument itself is is not only timeless but uh, a variant of many instruments around the world that's right so you know understanding like even in that in the documentary where you play some you know bluegrass riffs for all those africans yeah they they literally are laughing because it's so impressive and and elating just to hear because they're familiar enough with what that instrument can do or what it is. Yeah. But to hear that you know that pace and that energy, which is different. I mean, the music in that in that doc, some of that African music is very fast. Yeah. And it's very it's it's complex in rhythms. But they're not bluegrass rhythms, Mm-mm. and there are a lot. A lot of times they're in sixes and threes, and there's, yeah. there's not a lot of four four. Oddly enough, you know. Well, I mean, it's well. That's right. Like yeah. I listen to uh, uh, Baba Mall, some of that old oh, and Monster Sex he's that so record. Great. Yeah, like like those rhythms are. It's very interesting because that's what I was talking to Taj about. Is that you can hear that coming up through, like Skip James to me for some mm-hmm. reason, but but a lot of those guys a bit. But 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 it kind of changed to a four four pretty. Well, know. yeah, that. But Baba Mal is such a badass. I um we we went to see him in in Denver with Flectones had a night off and and he he called and said, yeah. he said my band didn't show up. Can you guys come? And really? so we all played a whole night with Baba Mal in 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 Denver at the at the uh, Botanic Gardens. Really, uh, his, completely unrehearsed. Just his band didn't from show. Scra- up? Yeah, I think they got stuck on a flight oh. or something, or in Africa or something. Right? Like, Can you help me? It was awesome. So much fun. See, that's like well, that's amazing. You got to be a pretty top notch musician to pull that off. Well, I mean, he'd start and we just get on there, <laughs> we just jump on board. We and, had a great time. Well, talk to me about that, about the uh, the African stuff, about like you know the the. Uh, the the what what's the word I want uh, the it, it's not as simple as it seems. Yeah, try to do it. You know, like, well, I saw you trying to do it. Yeah, I, I had to you know let the chips fall where they may because we were filming you know every day new music with new people and sometimes I could figure it out and sometimes I couldn't and I had a satellite phone at the time I called Abby back then we were new to our relationship but I called her I said I don't know what to do I mean we're filming I I don't know I can't do this she said just play like a jazz musician just. Re- respond don't, don't worry about it you know and it'll play be like okay. a jazz musician what yeah. does that mean instead of like feeling like like when you play bluegrass or even with the flectones i feel like i'm driving the 
the thing. Right. Like I know every note, I know what it's supposed to be, I can hold it together. Uh, but then you can play where you just leave a lot of space and play over the top and let things fall where they fall. And if you have the right attitude, it can be awesome. And I, I have a battle within uh, of between being free and being uh, set, like like working out these very f- complex structures, yeah. like with the flectones or right. the classical stuff where it's all set and then totally playing with Chick or whoever and being uh-huh. completely free. And they're two different sides of of me and I'm, yeah. I'm most musicians, honestly. Sure. But, um, so in this case, sometimes I could be the me that knew what was going on and could like really deliver, you know, fundamental stuff. And sometimes I had to be the me that was just responding to stuff that I had no idea what time signature we were in. Uh-huh. And hearing it back, I, it was an honest attempt. You know, that's well, all. Well, like even I, I watched some of it and it's just like, you know, you like it was interesting when you got past the riffs that you know into the repetitions that they were playing. Well, that's what's what happens if you you know, if you can relax and let the unconscious take over, um, you'll just start, you know, yeah. That jazz side of playing where you use your ear and you just respond. And usually you don't know what you did when it's the best. You're just like, I don't know, I'm just playing and he's doing that and I got to do this and I don't know what it is, but and so there's this guy, this blind musician uh that uh, played the thumb piano named Anania. Yeah. We had that experience just playing together where he, what he played just triggered a lot of stuff out of me that I didn't know how to do, but I just did it. You yeah. Know? And it was exciting to hear it, hear it back when I got home because I didn't know what had happened. It was like, it was like six weeks of just one day after another being like an incredible uh, challenge. And then I was hoping it was going to be good. And when I got home, some of, some of it was, you know, a lot of it was. So what's, what's, what's going to be the next thing now? What are you going to do? Uh, well, I have this record with Zakir and Edgar and uh, Rakesh Jirasia, this Indian classical. More Indian classical stuff? Well, I'm saying Indian, but it's a combination of, it's just four guys playing their instruments. It's, it's really cool music. Hybrid? Hybrid music, yeah. And uh, acoustic music, and we're putting that, that's coming. And uh, my wife and I, Abigail, How'd you meet her? Playing banjo? Yeah, kind of. She's part of the community. How know? long have you been together? Oh, I think about twelve years, something like that. Maybe longer. Got a couple kids. Yeah, yeah. Young, young kids for an old man. Yeah. Yeah. They playing awesome. music. Starting to. Yeah. Little, uh, little Theodore. Um, he likes to play the drums. He's four years old. He plays like like uh, John Bonham. I mean, he's, oh, yeah. he's, he plays like. What is amazing, it with these kids yeah. that are like just sort of have this? You know, can do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I watch it. I don't know if they're. I watch it on IG all the time. But there are these kids now that. I, is it something in the water? Is it like you know? It seems like the world is filled with prodigies all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they're prodigies. They're they're both just real musical kids who've just been around it their whole life. You know, whether they like it or not. You know, what do you mean? Juno's a golfer. Like oh, okay. Juno's nine, and he's like he wins these golf tournaments, and he interesting. I, I say, hey, I want to learn a little bit of banjo. Anytime, I'll be yeah. glad to tell you. Yeah. He says, no, Papa, you play banjo, I play golf. That's hilarious. And, he, and he's um, you know amazing. But um, lately, he's become interested in fiddle, and he sings like a bird, like with perfect pitch. So I think, fiddle. you know, things could turn. I'm yeah. hopeful. But they don't have to be musicians. No. Have to be their no. Thing. But how'd you meet Abigail? Were just on a festival or something? Um, I know she came to see me. You know, she's a little bit younger and um, didn't like it. You know, heard the flecton because she likes the real, you know, traditional uh, stuff, you know, the old yeah. time stuff. So it wasn't her thing. You guys record some old time stuff sometimes. We do, yeah. Yeah. But over the years, we, we met through the community. And then uh, I always thought she was an example of the kind of person I wished I was with. Yeah. And then one day we were both weren't with other people and I stalked her. And, uh, and that's how it and went. And that's how it went. And it's been the best thing that ever happened. Do you play a lot? 
Well, we go out and tour together. We take the kids and we go on a tour bus and play, you know, small ven- venues. And, uh, you know, like I, I, we, you and I play some of the same venues. Probably, Like, yeah, like Tarrytown, Music yeah. Hall, things like yeah, that yeah. size. Yeah. And um, and we go out and play. We get six or seven or maybe eight or nine banjos on stage and trade them around. And, no shit. And she's a really good performer. Like, she's very good with the audience. Yeah. Where I kind of stand there and try and think of something to say and let the music do its thing. <laughs> she, she's got a communication skill that's really beautiful. Yeah. She's a great singer, too. So it's nice. It's nice. Great. Yeah. Let's 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 take the banjo out. <clears throat> oh really? Are you sure? Yeah. If that if that mic's gonna work good with it. Yeah. Let's give it a shot. You want to play? You want me to demonstrate things? What do you want to do? Sure. I'd like. Uh... Oh yes. These things sound good. I'll even way up the neck. some body to it yeah yes well that's where you were playing on that african stuff you know once you got up there and it becomes almost more of a percussion instrument when you're way up there yeah it's like a lot louder way up here than down here oh my god yeah there's a power to it up there yeah Uh, so like when 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 you think of indian music what what, what's what riff do you start with um maybe uh Like you know, that's yeah, Hans, yeah, Hans yeah. Twenty. It's called. It's like the easiest yeah, yeah. starter. Do you but ever they have try- some good scales? Like to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, this, is, this is one I love. Uh, it's, a, it's just not. What do you ever you tried expect. to do those bends though? Well, the well, problem with the banjo is if you bend, the, the bridge moves and things get out of tune. So you can uh, do a little bending, but if you get, I mean, I'd love to. have <clears throat> had a more of a bending career, but it's just the, everything just goes out of tune. Didn't you ever think about getting a banjo made so you can bend? Well, an electric one. Yeah. I mean, you lose all the sound <clears throat> if you have a solid bridge. I that's can't believe connected. that that yeah. you, Bela Fleck, cannot have a guy make you a banjo you can bend on. Well, they, we do have these. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what being, they're doing, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's like a bender. Yeah, yeah, you I know, get it. You yeah, yeah, lock yeah, yeah. It down. They're called Scruggs tuners. Yeah, yeah, are they? Yeah. Is that okay? So that he used to do it by ear, where he would bend the string in the song by ear yeah. and bring it back up perfectly back in the old days. But then they created these cam tuners that were mechanical, and now they make these ones. Uh, Bill Keith was involved in making these ones that have uh, stops inside the keys. Yeah, inside the tuners. Yeah. 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 Wow. So all right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm wary to to play whole pieces of other people's music because I don't want to get charged for it. But uh, what, you got an original one? I could play just a, I just like to start playing and see what happens. I could just play a little bit and see if anything good happens. If it's not good, please don't play it for anybody. Well, I won't, I won't. I like to just fool around. Kind of find my way out of things and yeah. start just throwing my hands around and see yeah. what happens. Well, that's what I do. Yeah, but I don't, I'm not. I don't, I'm very limited. That's what we all do. <laughs> yeah. 
You know? I, I just like I think uh, for tomorrow's show or whenever on Thursday, I just recorded some guitar before you came over. It was just pretty much E and C. Yeah. And then I just went from uh, A to G back to E. But it was good. Those are good. Yeah. You ready to go? Yeah. You want to do something? Let's jam, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. It happened. It's great talking to you. It's great playing with you. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. It was it was a real fun conversation. And I'm a big fan of the show. I appreciate it. I go it. running to it all the time. You do? Yeah. So you knew what you're getting into. Yeah. You did good. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right, there you go. A little banjo, a little guitar. Yeah. The whole the whole the whole ride. His most recent album uh, is My Bluegrass Heart, and you can go to bailafleck.com to, uh, to, to find out where he's touring for dates and tickets. So, okay, that's that. Hang out a second. Look, folks, for Full Marin subscribers, there's a new Ask Mark Anything episode posted with answers to your questions about lots of stuff. Here's a bit of my answer to a question about why we haven't had Bob Dylan on the show. And then, you know, I was told to just call Jeff Rosen. So I called Jeff Rosen and I was like, look, man, uh, we met a long time ago. And yeah, look, he knows that people know the show. And I and I called Jeff and I said, is it like, look, and he's like, of course, I remember you and I know the show and whatever. I, I said, well, what are the chances, man? I want Dylan to do this 1000th episode. It'd be important to me. What are the chances of that happening? And Jeff Rosen said, zero zero chances and i'm like why he's like because you know he doesn't he's got no axe to grind doesn't feel like doing interviews he's not great at interviews the last interview he did was for the aarp it's just like he just doesn't do them you know it just there's no reason and i'm like what about you do you want to do an interview and he's like why do you think i've had this job for as long as i've had it i don't talk (laughs) okay that's posted now for Full Marin subscribers. To sign up, go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. Next week, we have Ralph Macchio on Monday and Dr. Henry Louis Gates on Thursday. For those of you who don't know, I'm in London 
we have a live WTF at the Bloomsbury Theater on Wednesday, October 19th with comedian and writer David Bedil. Tickets for that are on sale now. My stand-up shows at the Bloomsbury are on Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. Dublin, Ireland, I'm at Vicker Street on Wednesday, October 26th. Oklahoma City, I'm at the Tower Theater on Wednesday, November 2nd. I'm in Dallas, Texas at the Majestic Theater on Thursday, November 3rd. San Antonio at the Tobin Center for the Performing Arts for two shows on Friday, November 4th. And Houston at the Cullen Theater at Wortham Center on Saturday, November 5th. I'm in Long Beach, California at the Carpenter Performing Arts Center on Saturday, November 12th. Eugene, Oregon at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts on Friday, November 18th. And Bend, Oregon at the Tower Theater on Saturday, November 19th. In December, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina at the Orange Peel for two shows on Friday, December 2nd. And then Nashville, Tennessee, I'm at the James K. Polk Center on Saturday, December 3rd. And my HBO special taping is at Town Hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Here's a little more of me and Bela.